We begin this evening, though, with Curious Journey. That's the name of a documentary produced in the 1970s featuring interviews with nine veterans of the Irish Revolutionary Period. Here are the faces of today's honoured patriots. It was written and presented by the late Kenneth Griffith, the Welsh actor and documentary filmmaker who had a passion for Irish history. You are now looking at some of the Irish people who personally persuaded the British imperial power after 750 years of occupation to leave that part of their small island, which is today's Republic of Ireland. He made several documentaries on Irish history throughout his life. Before Curious Journey, he made Hang Up Your Brightest Colours, an exploration of the life of Michael Collins. Michael Collins was very interested in the security game, and therefore he knew that the English were coming for him, and so they didn't uh, catch him. He was now as elusive as Houdini. Indeed, it was said that he knew every chimney pot in Dublin. Both of these documentaries were controversial. Griffith's films were unapologetically republican in their sympathies and critical of the British imperial project. Well, he came from a little village in Wales, Tenby. By the time I met him, he was a very established stage and film actor. He's, you know, 30 years older than me or something like that. And he had been making provocative documentaries about the British Empire. I was in my mid-20s. He was in his 50s. That's Timothy O'Grady. He worked as a researcher on the documentary Curious Journey and co-authored the 1982 book of the same name. He'd made uh, one about Michael Collins that was suppressed. When I met him, I was reading a lot about Ireland and so on in Irish history, and he asked me if I would assist him in uh, research for a book about Collins. And we went over to Dublin and Cork and met a number of people who knew Collins and were active in his period and interviewed them. And he kind of got distracted from the book about Collins and wanted to make a film of those people. And he did. Uh, There were nine of them, seven men, two women, fought on both sides of the Civil War, from all walks of life, really, active at different levels. He made this film for Welsh television And it, too, was suppressed. So then I thought it would make a book. We had a lot of interview material and produced a book called, by the same title as the film, which was Curious Journey. And it was, you know, an oral history of that period through those voices. What we heard at home from our parents' tradition, father and grandfather and friends and neighbors, that tradition came down every year. Every generation. That's the voice of John L. O'Sullivan, the late Fine politician and one of the nine veterans in the documentary. And Irish history is a tragic history. And if you were an Irishman, just like if you were a native of any country, you love your own country. And people are prepared to make sacrifices for the right to live and to govern their own country. Timothy, in the 1982 Curious Journey book, you pause the War of Independence narrative and allow people like John L. O'Sullivan to speak about their experience of violence and the effect it had on them. 
Tell us a little bit about him and the story he told you when you met him in the 1970s, which didn't actually make it into the documentary, but makes it into the book. Well, we met him in Bandon in a room above a bar in a small hotel. And off camera, he told a story about how he was involved in the capturing and the holding of a couple of deserters from the Essex Regiment who were seen wandering around Bandon and who were eventually executed. It was a story that John L. O'Sullivan insisted not be included in the film. But when it came to the book, I just thought it was an important story. It obviously disturbed him, the episode, and I wanted it included because I thought it showed the human side of a volunteer at that time, and I I just asked him if he would agree that... um, I could come down to Clonakilty where he lived and record him telling the story. And there was a lot of back and forth. And finally, he was persuaded. And I I went down there. He was with his family, three or four generations of people, big lunch, you know, roast chicken and various potatoes and trifle. And and then we were he was going to tell me this story. And he insisted that all members of his family leave. But There was one grandchild who was three or four years old who was kind of playing around and wouldn't leave, and he he took a little windmill off a a mantelpiece to try to coax her to take it out to her mother, and she wouldn't leave, and she was, you know, sort of throwing herself on the sofa. It took him about 20 minutes to get her to go, and finally she did, and he told the story. The story involved two British soldiers from the Essex Regiment who were seen wandering around the Bandon area and were subsequently captured by the IRA. They said they were deserters. And they said that they were deserters, they wanted to go back to England, they'd rather fight in a flying column than, you know, go back to the British Army, but what they most wanted was to go back to England. And um, they were taken to the column headquarters, they met Tom Berry, they told him this story. Barry was interested in preferably demolishing this barracks, but at least getting arms out of it. And one of them said he had a brother who was a sergeant in the regiment inside the barracks, and he felt the same as he did. And an arrangement could be made for them to meet, and they would make a plan. So three people were going to go meet this brother near the barracks in Bandon. And um, Barry who was only 21 years old, had a heart attack and couldn't go. Another went to substitute for him, and three altogether went. And when they went, they were surrounded, their bones were broken, and they were bayoneted to death. It looked like the whole thing had been set up. In the meantime, while this ambush was taking place, John L. O'Sullivan and his brother Patrick were delegated to guard the two supposed deserters. And uh, they became integrated really into the family life. They did some work on the farm, I believe. The mother just saw them as two men who were far away from home and she cooked for them and she was kind to them. And they were moved from the house around to different locations. John L. and his brother also became friendly with them, played cards with them. But after this ambush, the order came down that these two men were to be executed. And the reason was that, as far as Tom Berry was concerned, they had set this up, and it was an old Civil War tactic to 
uh, get deserters to go behind lines and provoke an action and expose people. And so in addition to which, they had seen too much. They had met Barry. They had, you know, seen too many people. And they were therefore dangerous and there was no prison to hold them. So they were to be executed. John L. and his brother were ordered to prepare a grave and bring the two soldiers to the place of execution. And when his brother went into the house to get a pick and shovel, the mother noticed this. She was watching for them, and the demeanor of his brother and the pick and the shovel seemed to indicate something dark was going to happen, and she said to him, don't do anything that you'll regret. So the two brothers took the two deserters up the road, who they told were going to be sent on a boat back to England, and they arrived at the place, and Moss Toomey was the officer in charge of the execution. They said to him, we're not going to let this execution go ahead, because they had decided to follow the lead of the mother, and they liked these men, and they were ambivalent about the whole process. And he said, well, we have to do it as orders. I know it's very tough. And they said, well, you'll have to shoot us first. And he ordered them eventually to turn around and go back and await further orders. And the orders were, they came down from Barry that the execution was to take place on the following night. And as punishment, the two brothers would be in the firing squad. So they followed the orders. A different officer was in charge. Uh, there was a scene then at the place of execution where the officer said to the two men, we're sorry, we're going to have to execute you. We're sorry, too, that we don't have a minister of your religion here present so that you could say a prayer before you died, but you can have a moment to yourself. And one of them said, why would we do that? And he said, well, for your soul. And the older one of the two lifted up his shoe and tapped the bottom, and he said, that's all the soul I had, which profoundly shocked John L. O'Sullivan, who was quite a young man at the time, and they were shot. And he says that he didn't take part in the execution. They argued that both brothers shouldn't have to do it, and he was the least experienced. His brother was older, so his brother was part of it, and he wasn't, he said. He also liked to persuade himself that they were spies, but clearly there was an ambivalence about this, and the story distressed him enough that, you know, he resisted telling it until quite late in his life, but then he somehow he was persuaded that it was a human story that was worth telling. And when he finished telling it, he seemed to be quite relieved, as if some burden had lifted from him, and he became kind of more affable and lighter. And John L. kind of evolved into the free state side, into a Fine Gael politician, and also a blue shirt for a period of time. John L. O'Sullivan's story about the two doomed British soldiers, the two supposed deserters with whom John L. and his brother became friendly, is one that resonates across the generations. It's a story that has found its way into a number of literary and cinematic works. At some point... He was with a labor organizer, either in a prison or he'd arrested this person. I, I don't quite know the circumstances, but he told the story of this execution which took place near Clonakilty to this man. And it turned out that this man was a friend of Frank O'Connor's. 
And according to John L., that was the source of the story, the very famous, one of the most famous of all Irish short stories, Guests of the Nation, which in turn was transformed into, according to Frank O'Connor, Brendan Behan took it for the hostage, and Neil Jordan used it as the basis for the first part of The Crying Game. So the story had many lives, and John L. carried it all his life. There are many examples throughout the Curious Journey film and book of how the trauma of these years affected the people involved. We're going to hear now the voice of Bridget Lyons Thornton. She was a common Amman member who was in the forecourts in 1916. During the War of Independence, she transported guns for the IRA, as she was one of the few people who had a car at the time. In this clip, she describes hearing the leaders of the Rising being shot while she was being held in Kilmainham Jail. But in the morning, I heard a terrible volley of shooting. And I asked the, the one who came into us, and to me, a Miss McInerney, I said, what was all the shooting this morning? She said, they were shooting some of the men. I didn't know who or what, and I didn't believe it. That day, we were let out for about 10 minutes exercise, and we met a lot of other girls from other, who had been at other centres during the week. And I said to one of them, I heard they were shooting the men. She said, don't you worry. They're not going to shoot any of the men. They'd be too much afraid of America. Well, the next morning, the shooting was on again and again and again. Every morning after that, at about five o'clock, I could hear the men marching out once down by my cell door and a heavy march and out and then the volleys. That was very frightening, but I was consoled by what this girl told me. And I asked Miss McInerney again. She said, yes, there were more shot this morning. Well, for months afterwards, I always woke at that hour and I've never forgotten those volleys. Never. The voice there of Bridget Lyons Thornton. That's a very sobering clip there and it speaks to how the events of the Irish Revolutionary period could haunt people for the rest of their lives. I'm joined now by historian Liz Gillis. And Liz, Thornton talked more about how the execution affected her in the Curious Journey book, didn't she? Yeah, she did. And and this is the part of our testimony that really jumps out because she goes into, she explains how lost they felt at that time. Um, and I'm just going to quote here, um, Miles, what she actually says in the book. She says, um, it was as if the head of a family, if both your parents were shot and all your family and you were orphaned, there was no head or leadership or aunt left. I never felt so desolate in my life as I did after that. And that was the feeling of most people that everything was gone and lost. But it helped to unite the people too. Their hostility to the executions brought them together again. I suppose what we sort of tend to forget, especially when you see the film, you know, there are elderly people at that time, but she was only 18 at that time when that actually happened. Like so many of them were so young, you know, yourself, when you're that young trying to deal with emotions. So something like that, the impact that it had on them, um, it's, it's unbelievable. One person who was involved in the Republican effort at a very young age was Martin Walton, another man who appeared in the documentary Curious Journey. When I arrived at Jacob's factory on the Tuesday morning, it was surrounded by a howling mob roaring at the volunteers inside to come out and get out to France and fight a lot of so-and-so slackers and all this sort of business. 
He was out in the Easter Rising, aged just 15, carrying dispatches between Jacob's Biscuit Factory and the GPO, and he also took part in the War of Independence. Walton then went on to become the founder of the famous Walton's Music Shop. Timothy O'Grady, you met him during the production of the documentary, and like John L. O'Sullivan, Martin Walton also told you a story during a break in filming. That's right. He told a story about something that happened in 1919 before Solo had beg, before any actions were actually sanctioned. Actually, I think it was 1918. And he had the flu and that terrible flu that happened in 1918. And he was finally let out for a walk. And when he went out for a walk, he met a couple of other volunteers who he knew a bit. And they said there were four, there were actually four of them and they were on a job, and they asked him to go with them. It was a raid for arms, and he said raids were not sanctioned at that time, but if they worked, you got a pat on the back, and if they didn't, you were disowned. But he decided to go with them. They get, He said he didn't have a weapon. They said they had one for him. And the raid was on a house of a man named Pearson in Drumcondra, who was ex-British Army, and... He'd left his wife, and the wife's sister had given the IRA a tip-off that there were a lot of guns in the house, and they were going to get them. So they were told he'd come around 5 or 5.30 in the evening. They went, they waited outside, and he arrived drunk with two prostitutes and um, went into the house. So they deployed a couple of these men around the streets, and then Martin... Walton and a man called Liam knocked on the door. He came to the door. He was very gruff with them, but they pressed a revolver into his ribs and they said, we've come for your guns. Uh, You'll be given a receipt in the name of the Republic and you'll be paid when the Republic comes into being, but we have to get these. And they pushed him in. He'd said that there were no guns, but there was a rifle on a rack right inside the door. Liam took it brought it out to somebody else outside and came back in and the man attacked him and he got his arms around him and he was a huge man, like six foot four, very powerful, very wild and very enraged and he was squeezing the life out of Liam and he said, shoot now, shoot now, which he couldn't do because he'd have killed his comrade, Martin, that is. But he got around behind him and crashed this Webley revolver on the back of his head and the man collapsed. He then started looking for guns himself. He found a German Luger in a drawer. And when he was taking it out, this guy revived, got behind him and did the same thing to him. He grabbed him around the chest and was squeezing the life out of him. He thought he would kill them, kill him. And, uh, but he remembered that there was a little step very near and he sort of maneuvered over that way. The man fell on top of him. There was a scramble for the gun and Others came in and they shot this guy. Three of them put their bullets into him and he just roared at them using an expletive and died. But when he told this story off camera, the camera crew was there, Kenneth was there, I was there, a couple of others were there. He entered this story in a way that I've I've never seen anything. It was like he was transported in time He acted out the entire thing progressively, getting more and more into it and more and more distressed. 
and his breathing became short. His eyes grew very wild. He, he acted out the entire scene with the man swinging his comrade around and swinging him around. And when he came to the moment that the shooting happened, his arm went out as if he had a gun at the end. And it was as if he could see this man. His hand began to shake and his arm began to shake and his body began to quake. It was like he was having some kind of convulsion. It was very disturbing to watch. And when he finished, he kind of collapsed into a chair. You know, you sort of wonder, was he going to make it? I mean, it was so distressing to him to tell this story. Eventually, he calmed down, had a drink of something, and Kenneth asked him if he would repeat the story for the camera, which seemed unlikely, but he agreed, and he, he told the story with the camera on him, and, you know, he sort of straightened his tie, straightened his hair, was sitting, looking very serious and concentrated. In the paper recently, there was uh, four articles written about a certain, and an episode that's called an unsolved murder. And it was simply and solely a raid for arms. And the man that was raided for arms happened to be, we didn't know, a British spy. And I never saw a bigger man in my life. He was about six foot three or four, built in proportion. And I think I was about 18 at the time. And uh, there was a terrible trouble and he nearly killed two of us, including myself. And we had to shoot him. And he said, well, it was... It was a story in the paper about an unsolved murder. It wasn't a murder at all. It was a raid for arms, and we found out later the man was a British spy. I don't know how he knew that. That may have been similar to John L. O'Sullivan thinking that these men were spies. It might have made it easier for him to assimilate what had happened. But he said, you know, we offered to pay for the guns, and everything would be done correctly, and we were very polite, but he attacked us, and uh, we had to deal with him, and he was shot. The tip-off was given that he had a lot of arms in the house. He was called upon to deliver the arms and at the point of the gun. And he put up resistance. And when he was dealt with and we thought he was all right, he wasn't. He was jumped up and uh, tried to kill us. So in the struggle, he was shot. But it wasn't a question of murder at all, which was the last thing we intended doing. He was offered a receipt for the guns he was being taken from, that he would be paid for them, and that it was the recognised, what we call the recognised government at the time that was, gave us the power to do this. No use. And then Kenneth, with all the drama that he could muster in his voice, said, did that event haunt you, sir? He looked straight at him and he said, not at all. Does that event haunt you? Not at all. There was no intention there. It was pure self-defense. It was quite stunning that there was one self which had lived the experience and another self that was telling it to the public. I think this possibly is, can be common to people in war, but anyway, that was, that was the drama that we saw that day. Now, Martin Walton is obviously somebody who is very well known in Ireland, not just because of... The, the fact that he became involved in the music business as a music publisher, as a, a shop owner, but also uh, from a, a radio point of view, a very long-running sponsored programme on, on RTE. But he was, he was a violinist himself. And the story of how he got his start in the musical instrument business in itself is quite 
fascinating and it's it relates uh, to the War of Independence because he was sent to Ballykinler internment camp in County Down. That's right. And when he was there, he'd also been uh, a secretary to the editor of the Freeman's Journal. And when he got to Ballykinler, everybody who knew anything was giving classes to fellow internees and prisoners. And he gave classes in shorthand and the violin. He'd been playing violin in the first cinemas in Ireland. And um, he'd also given music lessons. And so he he started giving shorthand and violin lessons. The violin lessons were massively more popular than the shorthand. There was a, a need for more violins, and they, the camp commandant, I mean, the British camp commandant allowed that to happen, and the American White Cross procured a shipment of violins from Bosey and Hawks in London, and they arrived. But before the new lessons could get started up, the uh, truce happened, and the prisoners were all released, and they were left with these unused violins. And uh, the IRA camp commandant asked him if he would, so they could balance the books, if they could sell the violins. And he was going back to work, and he was also thinking of starting a music college in Dublin. That was an idea that Collins had, and Petter Carney, who wrote the soldier song, had. And he was in the camp with him, and he was busy doing this thing. And he put his father in charge of selling the violins, and an ad went in the paper, and they went almost overnight he had no money at all, and he saw this as a business opportunity. His father somewhat disapproved because his father thought, you know, all business was capitalist crime, but Martin thought he could make a living out of this. He, he traced the violins to the supplier of Bosey and Hawks to Bavaria, to a manufacturer in Bavaria, and so this, you know, 20 two-year-old ex-prisoner with no credit rating places an order for a lot of violins. And it turned out that the, the man who owned the musical instrument factory was a spiritualist. And uh, he held a seance to decide whether he should send these violins to Martin. And the word came back that he could do that safely. And that's how he started in his business, which, you know, made him quite a wealthy man and we went when we went to interview him it was in a house called Ashdown Lodge at the near the north gate one of the north gates of Phoenix Park and it was a house that was one time owned by a Colonel Dugdale who was the grandfather of Rose Dugdale and later occupied by a General Sandbach and the executions in 1916 were discussed in that house Maxwell came to that house but it wound up in rebel hands, in a sense, and it was an extraordinary house. It was an, full of archives of newspapers, theaters, old rifles, empty whiskey bottles. There was a ballroom knee-deep in violins and lacquered tortoise shells. There was um, his daughter raised Kerry Blues and wolfhounds. There were wolfhounds kind of drifting like giraffes through the house, in and out of the windows, through the rooms, there was Death Mask of Petter Carney and Finton Lawler. And, you know, ex there was an experimental vineyard. He was a very extraordinary, forceful, interesting man. And, well, that's where he told the story that so distressed him. 
Timothy, you've described for us this evening two encounters with two elderly IRA veterans. Both of them told stories that demonstrate how acts of violence lived on in their psyches for the rest of their lives. If you had to sum it up, what did you learn from these encounters? Well, you know, these people, they were very, very impressive, articulate, principled, sensitive people who had prodigious memories and you know, obviously had risked their lives at that time. But I could also see that because perhaps of those qualities, that, you know, the taking of another life is, is a very grave thing. And uh, there, there was a historian, Nicholas Mansurg, who wrote about this period, and he talked about how historians reduce things to cause and consequence what... The actual participants live as terrible and chaotic and and very distressing circumstances, and the historians tend to, you know, reduce in their telling those consequences what the people feel as as events that are very difficult for them to assimilate. And I think that was evident in that. And I think this is often the case with war. I recently read a, a very great book by. Svetlana Alexievich, the Nobel Prize winner from Belarus, who uh, who wrote about uh, in the unwomanly face of war, Soviet women who were involved in the Second World War who felt absolutely justified by what they had done, but as old women, they were still carrying the deep, deep distress of being close to violence and particularly the taking of life. And I think you know when people think of soldiers in war, they particularly volunteers in a, in, a, in a liberation struggle, they can think them heroes because they, they risk imprisonment or death and they, you know, they take those risks. But it seemed to me what is even a larger part of the sacrifice is having to live with having taken life. And even if you think it is justified, it doesn't reduce the weight of that burden. Well, thank you very much indeed, Timothy, for sharing those stories with us tonight. My guest was the writer Timothy O'Grady. The documentary Curious Journey is on YouTube. We'll put a link on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. I'm joined finally once again by historian Liz Gillis. Liz, how important were works like Curious Journey when they were produced? Because you're talking about the 1970s and uh, early 80s, that sort of period. Uh, they're vital miles and thankfully Kenneth Griffith was driven to do this. He saw how important it was to get these stories down and what is really important about documentaries or books like Curious Journey is the way they were made. Like interviews had been undertaken with veterans in the 1960s. We've seen them with, you know, people who took part in 1916, but they're very formal. They're in a studio setting. It's like a safe environment, but you can see with Curious Journey, the settings that the, the, the people are in, they're relaxed. Griffith obviously built up a lot of trust with them and it's a conversation that they're having. And when you find in, when you're having the conversation, other stories come up that you may not expect when you ask that question. And again, remembering the time that they were made, 
this is long before anyone really knew that the BMH witness statements um, were in existence. Some people had access to them. You know, the pension files were never going to be released. So to get those testimonies down while these people were in their twilight years, you know, he realised the importance of them. And it was just such an amazing feat to, to get those stories because looking at the witness statements, looking at the pension files, they verify what these veterans have said. And the really important thing is, Miles, they show them as people. These are people at the end of the day. It's not a, a one-dimensional character behind the name. These are men, women who took part in momentous events, didn't know what was going to happen and certainly didn't bank on the cost to them uh, psychologically, personally. And you see that on screen and you read that in the book. And when you see the film, you hear their voices. You know when you're reading the book, you can hear the voice of Breedlines Thornton. You can hear and see and imagine the passion of Kenneth Griffiths, you know. Um, it's, it's just amazing and really fair place to two of them, both him and Timothy O'Grady, for doing it. We'll have to leave it there, Liz. The, the book and film Curious Journey are certainly fascinating and important historical documents when it comes to remembering and understanding this period of violent upheaval in our history.